Uh, it is Palm Sunday, as Kel said, and uh, this is an exciting Sunday because it does culminate Passion Week, um, or begins Passion Week, where we will celebrate Easter at the end of this week. This, this Sunday is, marks the day that Jesus actually rode into Jerusalem on the donkey, that many of you know that story. Uh, the, the Gospels call it the triumphal entry, where he came into Jerusalem to only a few short days later to give his life to be the atonement for our sins. And that is something to be excited about. I'm excited that he did not reject the calling that was on his life while he was on this earth, right? In fact, the Bible says that it was for the joy that was set before him that he endured the cross. Well, you and I are that joy that was set before him. So we're the reason that he got on that donkey and rode into Jerusalem, even though he knew what his fate was going to be in that city. So we praise God for that today. And uh, I'm gonna talk a little more about the triumphal entry in a minute, but. Um, we are in a series that we're calling Jesus Is, and uh, we're talking about everything that Jesus is this month in April, everything that we can get to in a month. Obviously, we're only scratching the surface of everything he is. But, uh, you know, since Easter is such a big Sunday, we, we thought rather than just throw all of our resources and energy at that one Sunday, which we'll still do a lot of that, but we'll spread it out over the whole month to talk about Jesus and everything that he is. And uh, last week we talk, talked about him being the true vine. Next week, obviously, Easter, we're going to talk about him being the resurrection and the life which is incredibly exciting that all this that we do is for nothing if, it, if he's not the resurrection and the life. And so uh, next week, we're very, very excited to celebrate that. But today, we are going to continue on our series. In fact, I'm gonna read my text verse to you. In fact, if you would please stand with me as we read God's word together out of Ephesians 1. This is the Apostle Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus, verses 18 and the first part of verse 19. He says, I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and his incomparably great power for us who believe. Great scripture, great verse, great statement from the Apostle Paul to us today. Uh, the title of my message today is simply Jesus is more. Would you pray with me this morning? Our great heavenly father, Lord, we thank you today that great is your faithfulness. Lord, I pray that you would open the eyes of our heart today to see you in all your glory, to see everything that you would want us to see, God. Give us your perspective as we spend this time together over these next few minutes. Lord, I pray that my words would be your words, that, that the words that are of you, God, would germinate in our heart, producing fruit, God, that will go with us and affect our lives and the lives of those that you've put in our life. And Lord, it's all for you and it's all for your glory. And it's in Jesus' precious name that we pray. And everyone said, amen. amen. God bless you. You can be seated. Praise the Lord. So last week, I started off by asking you a question. If you were, would you want more of Jesus in your life? Now, I didn't ask for answers or raise of hands, but I think collectively, we could probably say almost 100% of us would say, yes, definitely want more of Jesus in our life. But, and today, what I wanna talk about is the fact that Jesus is more, that no matter what level of relationship we have with him, no matter what level of understanding, no matter what level of knowledge we have in Jesus, there's always more. There's always more. We will never exhaust the amount of growth that we can have in our life. In fact, we say all the time that as long as you have air in your lungs, that there is a next step for you in your faith. We are always to be taking next steps in our faith. We talk about next steps here at New Hope all the time. It's not about your next step at New Hope nearly as much as it is about your next step in your walk of faith because we're never going to arrive until that day we're with him face to face. And so the, there, no matter where we're at in our life, there's always a next step for us. And this is something that we cannot do on our own. You cannot grow, even in your faith, you cannot grow on your own. In fact, I'm going back to my text verse here, but this is where Paul said, He's praying that the eyes of our heart would be enlightened. There has to be enlightenment in our life. Now, I know that term enlightenment kind of gets a bad rap today because there's other religions that kind of use that as kind of their hallmark word, you know, and it just, it can kind of mean like being one with the earth or getting to this place of nothingness, you know, that a lot of weird stuff. But that is not what we're talking about. We're talking about the word enlightenment here in this passage is really just the Greek word photizo, I think I pronounced that right, which means understanding, knowledge, and clarity. Would anybody like more clarity in their relationship with Jesus? I think we all would, right? 
That's something that it's okay for us to look for that and want that. He's, Paul's actually praying that for us, that we would have that clarity in our life. But to have it, your hearts must be enlightened. Your heart, the eyes of your heart must be open. We t- I talk about the eyes of your heart all the time because it's different than the eyes of our head, right? We, walk, we live this life by faith, not by sight. The eyes of our heart, it is about understanding. It is about relationship with Jesus. It's about knowledge. It's about clarity in our life. So when we refer to the eyes of the heart, we don't actually see with our heart, but we're talking about having the understanding, the spiritual understanding that God would want to give us. So I want to give you the, in this, my text verse, there's three specific things that he's praying that we would have enlightenment in our life. And I want to just go through them real quick to kind of set the, the stage for us today. First of all, he says that he's praying that we would know the hope to which he has called us that we would know the hope to which he has called us. This is talking about what is to come. So he's saying there is a hope, and he's praying that we would know that hope. That hope is about the future. It's about eternity. It's about the fact that we can hope in the fact that there's going to be a day where we're going to be with Jesus face to face, and we're going to be with him in eternity, that there's going to be no more suffering. There's going to be no more pain. There's going to be no more sin. There's going to be no more uh, physical issues, there's going to be no more relationship issues, that this is all going to pass away and we're going to be with him. And he's saying, I'm praying that you would know that hope. And the reason we need to know that hope is because when we do, it changes what matters in our life. If we really know that that is a real thing and we're not just saying, this is not a hope of where I'm like, I hope heaven's real. You know, I'm, I'm just hanging on, hoping that heaven's real. That's not the kind of hope he's talking about. He's talking about having a hope that really is believing for what is coming in the future. Because when we really do believe it, it will change how we live. And then he says that he prays for our, that our eyes would be open to see that we are his glorious inheritance. This is beautiful because this goes to how he sees us, how God sees us. You know, we talk about inheritance. Oftentimes we talk about how we get to inherit the things of God in our life. When we step into the family of God, when we become part of the family of God, then we get that inheritance. The Bible even tells us that we are heirs and co-heirs with Christ. So we get a great inheritance by being part of God's family. But here, Paul's actually talking about, he's flipping the script here. He's saying basically to us, hey, just so you know, God's pretty excited about you being his inheritance too. That this is a pretty cool thing, that God didn't just not judge you and not condemn you because he can't now because of what Jesus did for you, but he's actually really excited that you're part of his family. He actually sees you as an inheritance as well. And this speaks to how God sees us. And knowing this can change our life when we understand that God's actually a personal God that wants relationship with us. He's not just turning a blind eye to our mistakes because of what Jesus did, but he is invested in our life and wants us to be personal with him. And But Paul's saying the eyes of your heart have to be open to actually understand how he even sees us. And then thirdly, he says that we would know his incomparably great power. Praise God, that we would know his incomparably great power. This is about his effect on us. This is about the Holy Spirit indwelling in us, living in us and through us in life. And he's saying, I'm praying that your eyes, your heart would be open to know this power because you know what? You can have all the power in the world. If you don't know it, you're not gonna use it, right? If I'm driving a stick shift and I have five gears, but I don't know about any of the five except the first gear and I stay in first gear, it doesn't matter how much power I got, I can't, if I'm not, if I don't know I have it, I'm not going to use it because I'm going to drive it like a regular manual or a automatic transmission. We have to know the power we have if we're going to use it. Because see what, what Paul is telling us here is that there's different levels of understanding and enlightenment even in our faith. This is a huge truth that we need to understand, church. He wrote this letter to the church in Ephesus. This was written to Christians. And he's saying, I'm praying for you Christians that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened, that your eyes would be opened to these three truths about the hope you have, about how God sees you, and about the power you have in your life. And so that tells me that it's important for me to pray that my eyes would be opened to see what God wants me to see. Because just because I'm a Christian doesn't mean I get that I'm gonna operate in all of these things in my life. There's a lot of us as Christians that are just plugging along trying to get to the end. When the reality is, God, Paul's telling us here, 
God's telling us through Paul, I should say, that there's so much more to it. But you can't do it on your own because the eyes of your heart have to be opened to it. It's very, very important that we understand this. Because it's all about, it gives us the level of relationship we have with Jesus helps us to have the perspective that God would want us to have in our situations, right? Have you ever noticed that a group of people can do the exact same thing, go to the exact same event, but have very, very different experiences? Uh, in fact, in the, in the practical, um, on Christmas Day, seven of us, my family, couple, and, and, and Jessica and her mom, we all went to see the new Spider-Man movie on Christmas. And I was pretty excited to see it because I've seen the other Spider-Mans. I've always liked Spider-Man movies, thought they were pretty good. I like the, uh, you know, the other movies that I've seen that were Spider-Man movies, so we went to this one. And I was incredibly disappointed with this one. Now, don't boo me off the stage here. If you liked it, that's fine, but you're wrong. Um, and I, I thought it was just ridiculous. Like, three Spider-Mans in one movie, I'm like, they're out of ideas, right? And so when we came out of the movies, I was thinking everybody felt like I did. And I started railing on this movie. Well, next thing I know, everybody else is mad at me. Like, what are you talking about? It's the greatest movie I've ever seen in my life. I'm like, did we see the same movie? We went to the exact same thing, but we had very different experiences, right? Based on our perspective. Mine based on maturity, theirs based on immaturity. No, just kidding. <laughs> Actually, probably the other way around. Um, and, and also reminded me of back in the uh, mid-90s, I went on a missions trip. We went for seven weeks. We went into the Caucasus Mountains in Russia to work with a ministry there, just spreading the gospel and doing, doing the, the work of the Lord. And on our way, we went through Moscow. We stayed a couple days in Moscow and did some touristy things. And through a contact we had there, we had this incredible honor of being able to go into the Kremlin to see the Russian ballet perform Swan Lake. I mean, it's an incredible blessing to be able to do this. I didn't know it at the time, but Russian ballet, I guess, is the best in the world or was, and the Swan Lake's one of the most famous uh, ballets to ever be done. And so everybody was all jacked up and excited to go to this thing. And we all went in, it was so cool to go into the Kremlin. We went in this auditorium where they were doing the ballet and it was really cool. The first five minutes was really neat. And then all I remember after that was somebody waking me up when it was over. Because I was bored to tears in this ballet. Now I was, you know, early 20s, didn't have much appreciation for anything of culture, you know. And, uh, and so I didn't really enjoy it. And then walking out was the same thing. I thought everybody else hated it too. So we were kind of ripping on it and, you know, people just dancing around and talking ir very irreverently about ballerinas. And, and, but the women on our team thought it was amazing. And they were, you know, they were crying and saying how powerful it was and how great. And I was like, telling me the storyline. I'm like, there was a storyline? It looked like they were just all taking turns dancing, you know? And, and we all went to the same thing, but we all had very different experiences. That is how it is in our faith too, church. Your experience, your perspective on a situation in your life is different depending on your relationship with Jesus. One Christian can go through a situation, maybe a medical situation, and their perception of God in this situation because God's not maybe doing what they want and healing them miraculously or they're getting a bad report can, can be one way and another Christian can go through the exact same thing and be rejoicing in God's faithfulness. Now, how is that? How is that that one person that's, that also loves Jesus can be frustrated and upset and their faith is staggering and stumbling in a situation somebody else can go through the exact same thing and be rejoicing and worshiping and in tears talking about how faithful God is in their life. Can I tell you today, I believe it's because there are a lot of amazing attributes about God that we don't know if we don't have the perspective. If we don't have the depth of relationship, if the eyes of our heart have not been opened to see those things, it can look like foolishness to other people. You can't know the faithfulness of God unless you have eyes to see his faithfulness. You can't really understand that God is your provider unless you have eyes to see his provision. If you are someone that is working for a company and you get a paycheck, and that paycheck has your company's name on the top of it, showing who it was from, you still know that your provision is from God. Now he's using that company as a vehicle to provide for you, but that when you get to that place where your eyes are open to understand who he really is, you know that every provision you have in life comes from him. It doesn't matter whose name is on the check. It's from him. But you have to know that he is that to be able to see that. And the only way to see that is if the eyes of your heart have been opened. 
to know that his word is true, your eyes have got to be open to the truth, to know the truth of God. See, not everything is in black and white. Some things God may have spoken to you specifically and given you a promise. And to understand and believe and live that truth, you have to know that he is faithful and he is who he says he is, despite what's going on. Uh, in uh, Numbers, the book of Numbers, all the way back in the Old Testament, back in the Pentateuch, okay, the book of Numbers, it was written by Moses, and it was documenting a lot of their journey from, from Egypt to the cusp of the promised land, right? And in Numbers 13, they're really close to Canaan. They're very close to where the promised land is, where God has said, you're gonna go in there eventually. Moses sends out 12 spies, okay? Many of you know this story. He sends out 12 spies to go out and spy out the land. Go look at the land and bring back a report. So 12 guys go to look at the land. They're there for 40 days. And they come back after 40 days to report back what they saw. 12 guys did the exact same thing, spent their time together, went to the exact same event, but had very, very different perspectives. 10 of them came back and said, wow, I mean, this place is really flowing with milk and honey. The grapes are huge, the pomegranates are amazing, but the cities are walled up and fortified, and the people inside these cities are monsters. They're huge, we look like grasshoppers. There's no way we can take the land. This is a suicide mission. But God loved Moses, or Caleb and Joshua, because Caleb and Joshua came in and said, oh my goodness, the grapes are huge, the pomegranates are amazing, the land is beautiful, it is flowing with milk and honey, the cities are fortified with walls, the people are gigantic, but we can definitely take the land. And they believed they could take the land, not because they were strong enough or they had the ability to do it, but because of the word of God. They stood on the truth of what God said and cho chose to believe his truth rather than to look at their circumstances. Can I tell you today, your faith or your lack of faith is never ever based on your circumstances. It's not based on your circumstances. It's based on the enlightenment of your heart. It's based on what you are able to see based on your depth of relationship with Jesus. That is what you're, where your faith comes from. If you think your faith is good because everything's going great in your life, that's actually a fraud. Because all that means then is when something goes bad, which something's going to go bad, that's the world we live in, then your faith is gonna waver if your faith is based on how God takes care of you and blesses you. Our faith is not based on that. Now that's a perk of our faith. God is a good father and we thank him for that. But the faith doesn't, isn't rooted in that. The faith is rooted in who he is and the fact that he is faithful, the fact that we can trust him no matter what the situation is, the fact that he knows more than we do and I don't have to have everything figured out to understand the clarity in my life doesn't necessarily come by understanding everything God's doing. It comes by understanding who he is and his character and knowing I can stand on his character. It is good for us to pray that God would open the eyes of our heart. I can tell you, church, I pray it all the time. I pray almost daily, God, give me eyes to see. Give me eyes to see. I don't pray for God to, to conform my image of what he should do in a situation, but I ask him to give me eyes to see so that I can receive whatever happens in the situation. We should be praying for eyes to see. That's a really, really good thing. And depending on where you are in your journey, your perspective is going to be different. But our, it should always be our goal to go to deeper places in our walk with Jesus. Now, I wanna give you an illustration that kind of helps explain this a little bit. Um, as I said, you know, today is Palm Sunday, so I'm gonna give you an illustration from Palm Sunday that's gonna kind of help uh, solidify this for you, okay? So, as I mentioned, the triumphal entry, it's mentioned in all four gospels, Jesus coming into the city. And uh, before he came in, he sent two of his disciples off to go get a donkey for him and bring it back to him so he could ride this donkey going into the city. So let me pick it up in Luke 19, verse 35. It says, they brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. Now the other three versions of this, in the other three gospels, they also mentioned the palm branches waving palm branches, throwing palm branches on the ground as well. When he came near the place where the road goes down to the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is he who comes, is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, 
rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. It's a great illustration. It paints a really neat picture of Jesus coming into Jerusalem, and it was a celebratory thing. It was a very, very emotional moment. The emotions were very, very high in, in different ways in this experience. And I'm gonna, I wanna break it down to like three different groups of people in this illustration, okay? Not that there aren't, there aren't more than three in the world, anything like that, but just for the sake of helping us to understand I've broken this down into three different groups of people with different perspectives in this scenario. And each perspective is directly proportional to the depth of relationship these people had with Jesus. Okay, so for the sake of illustration, uh, uh, we, we did a graphic. It's gonna show, it shows three circles, okay? Yep, three circles, okay? And these are the different spheres, the different perspectives that people might have had on that day. And, and I'm gonna correlate it to how we are today as well. So you got the outer circle, you've got the middle circle, and you've got the inner circle, okay? So the, the outer circle is actually the one where you see what you want to see. The people in the outer circle, they saw what they wanted to see. The people in the middle circle, they see what many people see. They follow the crowd. And then the inner circle, they see what few see. Now I'm gonna expand on all these, so don't get nervous and think you're missing something, okay? Um, the further in to the circle, the deeper the level of understanding, enlightenment, and relationship with Jesus, okay? So you can't expect the people in the outer circle wouldn't have the same perspective or depth of relationship as the ones in the inner circle. Now, let me just say, I know I said inner circle. I don't want this to, that, that term can sound exclusive, okay? The inner circle, the people close to Jesus, that is not an exclusive group. It is a smaller group but that's only because there's fewer people that are really willing to make the commitment that it takes to be in that inner circle with Jesus, in a depth of relationship with Jesus that he calls us to, but not because it's exclusive or elite or anything like that, okay? So let's, let's start with these circles of perspective and ask ourselves the question, how do I see Jesus? What is my perspective of Jesus? And find where we line up in this, okay? So we'll start with the outer circle. The outer circle is the people who see what they wanna see. In this triumphal entry, this would have been the Pharisees, this would have been onlookers that were just watching. And the, these people, their relationship with Jesus was based really only on what they heard other people say about Jesus. This is, these are people that don't have a relationship with Jesus. In other words, these are people that are far from God, that are distant, that don't really know God or who he is. And some of them knowingly, are far from Jesus and wanted, to, wanted it to be that way. Some are knowingly far from God. Others are unknowingly far from God. You know, the difference between being in the physical dark and being in spiritual darkness is that if you're in physical darkness, you always know. You always know if you walk into a room and the light's not on, right? Because immediately, what do we do? Look for the light switch. If there's no light switch, we get our phone out and get the flashlight. We're always looking to bring light into darkness in the natural because we know we need it to get around. But in the spiritual, you can be in darkness for years, decades, a lifetime, and not really know it. You don't always know that you're in spiritual darkness because if people really knew they were in spiritual darkness, they would wanna get out of that spiritual darkness. The fact is, so many don't know. In fact, uh, Corinthians tells us, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, look what, Apostle Paul said here, he said, the God of this age, that is Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So the enemy has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they can't even tell that they're in darkness. You might have, if you remember back to your days before you were a follower of Jesus, you might remember that specifically. That, oh, you know what, I lived a long time not even thinking I was far from God until all of a sudden the light was turned on and I realized, whoa, I'm in the dark, right? Because the God of this age has blinded the mind. So the prayer has got to be that God would open the eyes of the heart, not just for us as believers, but for those that are far from God too. Because unless you can see with your, the enlightenment of your heart who Jesus is and, and your need for a savior, you're not gonna, make that decision. 
you ever talk to somebody about your faith and try to get them to give their life to Jesus? And they're kind of like, I mean, I guess I can. I, what, is it, what does it mean, you know? There's just a lack of understanding there because their minds have been blinded to what is happening in their life. And it's not that all these people are worshiping Satan. It's just that they don't see their need to come out of the darkness. They haven't seen him for who he is. Now, in this scenario of walking into Jerusalem, the biggest culprit that's in this outer circle would be the religious people, the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the ones that told Jesus when people started praising God, they were the ones that told Jesus, hey, rebuke your disciples. Basically, hey, you're not God. Why are you letting them say that? They didn't believe that he was who he said he was. They had no relationship with him. All they knew is that he did not look like what they thought the Messiah was going to look like because they thought they were super religious and close to God. And so they assumed that the Messiah would come and even look more religious and even closer to God. And it would look like they thought it would look where it was about rules, that it was about having this, this piety, you know, just being above everybody else and being elite and exclusive and looking better and being attractive and all these things. He didn't look like they thought the Messiah would look like. And so they thought he was just a troublemaker. And he, they thought he was somebody to be dealt with. And it was because they were far from God and they saw what they wanted to see. They didn't want to see a Messiah that looked like Jesus. They wanted to see a Messiah that looked like them. And that's, the, that's typical in this outer circle is that religion never likes the real Jesus. Religious people are never drawn to the real Jesus because the real Jesus makes religion obsolete. Because the real Jesus is about relationship with him. It's not that we don't do the things that might be required by the religious, but we're not doing it as a order of instructions. We're doing it with a foundation of a relationship with Jesus and in the power of the Holy Spirit to help us live this life that he's called us to live. Religious people did not like Jesus, but sinners did. You know, in the, in the United States, I'm sure it's no secret to any of you, society is running away from the church. Right? We're seeing it at a rapid, rapid clip. It's actually, it's been kind of going like this for a while, and now it's actually picking up speed. In fact, for the first time in the history of this country, less than 50% of the people in this country are affiliated with the church for the first time in our history. So you can see it's declining. Now, I don't say that to scare us or to think, oh no, what's gonna happen? Another 10 years, there's only gonna be you know, 50 of us left that love Jesus. It's not gonna that way at all. The word, is, the word has promised us that his, his word's gonna remain. There'll always be those that love Jesus. And he could bring a revival tomorrow and make that number jump up to 100% if you wanted to. So our trust and our hope and our faith is in him. But the reality is right now, society is running from the church. And I just think it's interesting because Again, the religious people were not drawn to Jesus, but sinners were. Is it possible that the reason sinners are not drawn to the church is because they're seeing more religion than they're really seeing Jesus? Is that something we need to take inventory in our own heart? Are we judging others? Are we wanting them to look like Christians without actually having the heart change, right? Are we telling them to act a certain way because that's how we act, but in reality, that's just religion. And we're not really loving them as Jesus did. Now, Jesus didn't compromise who he was being around sinners, but they were drawn to him. There has to be something there that if they're being drawn to him, and I realize Jesus was doing miracles and doing crazy things that people had never seen, but that's not the only reason people were drawn to him. Everywhere he went, people wanted to be around him. There was fire in his eyes. There was the love and the passion of the Holy Spirit in him. It was drawing people. And that's what we should be praying for in the church too. Not that, that society would change, but that they would be drawn to us because of our relationship, our openness of our eyes, of our heart. They would see, because when somebody really encounters Jesus, he changes you. He changes you. I had a man come up to me after first service, got saved just over a year ago. And he's been coming to our church. He said, I've been coming for 40, 54 straight weeks. He said, I've been coming here more than you because you missed a week because of COVID. And he said, and he's in his 60s. He got saved in his 60s. And he said, for over 60 years, I lived my life the way I wanted to. And when I finally gave my life to Jesus, he said, I am a completely different person. And he's like, it's not, he's not trying to be any way. 
He's just, he was just telling me, Jesus changed my life. He changed my heart. That's an encounter with Jesus. When you really encounter him, he changes you. He doesn't make you feel guilty for want, not wanting to do some of the things Christians are supposed to do. He literally changes your desires. He changes your heart. He changes your DNA. The old is gone. The new has come. If you haven't experienced that in your life, then you've got you to gotta ask God to open your heart, open the eyes of your heart, and be willing to, to see whatever it is he wants you to see. Lay your preconceptions down at the cross and give yourself to him and see if he won't change you from the inside out and make you more like him. Without Jesus, we are just all lovers of self. It's really what we are. It is in our sin nature, the nature we have that we are born with, every single person is born with the nature to love ourselves more than anybody else. Self-preservation. It's, it's innate in all of us. So if we don't have the Spirit of God living in us, there's nothing to keep us from just loving ourselves and not really feeling like we need a savior. And the bottom line is, those people that are in the outer circle, it's just deception. We're just deceived. Because the eyes of the heart are blinded by the God of this age. You might have a version of Jesus, but it's this ambiguous, all-inclusive Jesus that doesn't really match up with the word of God. So the goal is to not be in this outer circle. Now, again, I'm, I'm giving three circles. Obviously, there is a lot. I'm, I'm painting with broad strokes here for the sake of the illustrations. I want you to understand that. It's not like you're in one of these three categories, and if you're in not one of these three, you're, you're not alive. You know, it's, it's just really to help give us some understanding today. So the middle circle then. The middle circle, you see what many people see. Basically, this is the crowd in the triumphal entry, the one shouting, Hosanna. Right, the ones that are excited that Jesus is coming. But these people, other than the disciples close to Jesus, these people had a very shallow relationship with Jesus. They have a level of belief, but they're not really too willing to invest much. These ones throwing their cloaks down. Yeah, I'll give them my cloak, you know, I'll throw it on the road, pull off a couple palm branches, throw them down for them. We're excited, but it's more about the emotional experience with Jesus than it really is about the relationship. Now, this is this is probably the majority of the church today. That we are more about the emotional experience with Jesus than we really are about the depth of relationship with Jesus. We're looking for the, the high of a spring break. You know, if you took some time off this week during spring break, it's a high. You know, we went down to Jacksonville for a few days. We had a good time. It was nice to rest and relax. But you know what? That's not real life. I mean, it's a break from real life, but it's not real life. And so, but so often in our faith, we want that spring break high emotional feel to carry us through all the time. When the reality is the life with Jesus in the day to day, a lot of it's a grind. A lot of it's even mundane. And I know for some of you that you're ready to come up here and throw me off the stage for even saying that. But I can tell you from experience, not every day with Jesus is this emotional high. I don't wake up every morning and just go, Today's the best day ever. I just feel Jesus in this place. I mean, he's, he's in my bedroom when I get up. He's in the shower when I shower. He's in the car with me on the way to work. I don't feel that way every day. Some days it's a grind. Some days it's like, help me, Jesus. Help me get through the day, Jesus. I'm tired today. I'd really rather just go golfing today, Jesus. That's, that's the Christian life. It's not just going to be the emotional high. But the ones in this middle circle, the crowd, they were getting attached to the emotional experience. They're saying, Hosanna, glory to God in the highest. That's the same people that five days later were going, crucify him, crucify him. Now, you can speculate why. I think one reason is pretty obvious. They wanted a king. Israel was under the oppression, under the thumb of the Romans, and they hated the Romans, and so they wanted a king. And many people thought the Messiah was going to actually be a physical king. So they see him coming in. Some of them are going, finally, getting rid of these stinking Romans. And this is going to be wonderful. Well, and four or five days later, they realize, oh, that ain't going to happen. Yeah, crucify him. Who cares? He's not doing what we thought he would do. He can't be the real one, because if he was, he'd be the king. And so they just were, they were on this emotional high, so they were attached. And then here comes the down, and they're done. And man, do I see this in the church all the time. 
where we're just riding this roller coaster. And when things are great, God's the greatest ever. But when we're in the valley, when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we forget that he's with us. And we're mad because he's not doing what we want him to do. And we want the emotional experience of our faith. Let me tell you, there's an emotional aspect to our faith, and that's a good thing. And we should never, ever neglect that or act like it's not there. I can get very emotional in my faith sometimes. I can sense the presence, I can sense the pleasure of my God and his love for me, and I can get teared up. I bawled my head off in my office just reading my Bible. And then there's days I read my Bible and I have to read the same page six times because I cannot remember what I'm reading. That's just life. And if you're just living for the high emotional times, you're never ever gonna get out of that middle circle because that's just, it's fickle. It's not based on a depth of relationship, it's based on what God can do for you. It's based on what, how he makes you feel in a situation in your life. This is definitely the people that want what they can get out of God. Stick with them when things are going well, but when the going gets tough, they get going. Not with him, away from him. And it's so common. In fact, we saw this actually in John 6, where Jesus had just fed the 5,000 with the bread and the, and the fish. Did an incredible miracle, one of the greatest miracles that's ever been recorded, right? Not long after that, he's speaking to these same crowd of people and he's telling them, hey, actually, I am the bread of life. Actually, I'm the one, you need to eat my body and drink my blood if you're gonna be part of me. Not literally, but he's telling them, you need to be fully committed to me. And it tells us in verse 66 what happened. It says, from this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You don't want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the 12. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. That's someone with his eyes open. But many of the disciples, many of his followers, many Christians walked away because he said, actually, I need a level of commitment. I can't just have you around because I gave you some bread and fish. But I want you to be with me in all things and committed to me. This middle circle, people just want to blend in. This is about being part of the crowd, being swayed by public opinion. Man, do we see that powerfully today, that even public opinion about faith and about doctrine and about theology is really under attack, right? I mean, social networking is a wonderful thing. The world has become so small because we can just network around the world in a moment. It's a beautiful thing, but it doesn't come without its challenges. And what we see is, people on social media that have tons of followers that have decided what they believe about the Bible and they twist things and they're saying things that go against the word of God, but they have so many followers and it's challenging our doctrine moving forward. I'm seeing it all the time. My kids come to me and say, hey, this guy on TikTok said this about, about Christianity and he's got like 200,000 followers, so it must be true. And they'll show it to me and I'll look at it and I'm like, I don't care how many followers he's got, that's heresy, right? but we can be so easily swayed if we are not grounded in our faith. And we're seeing it, not just in social media, everywhere. I mean, how, many, how many Christians have said, you know what? Every Christian I know engages in gossip, so it must be okay, right? It's not that big a deal. Almost every Christian I know engages in sex outside of marriage. It must not be a big deal then, because you see it everywhere, right? All these issues that we see and we can be so easily swayed by the crowd because we don't really have that depth of relationship with Jesus. When the reality is, if we're going to really follow Jesus, if we're gonna really eat his flesh and drink his blood, there's going to be a lot of things we're gonna to have to reject that even a lot of other Christians are going to do. Spiritual leaders will lead you astray as much as anybody if they're not following the word of God in their life. In fact, in Numbers 13, the, the, the story I told you about the the 12 spies going in. You know, the 10 that came back, they stirred up the whole crowd. I mean, it makes it sound like it was literally Moses, Caleb, and Joshua were like the only ones that were not totally a wreck after this. And they stirred up the crowd to the point, it actually says that they got together and discussed who could be their new leader. They kicked Moses out. Moses, the guy who brought them out of Egypt across through the Red Sea, we're gonna get rid of Moses and get some new leader that will take us back to Egypt. That's, that, makes, that just messes with our head, doesn't it? 
think that they would be willing to go back into that place of bondage, but church, we do it all the time in our faith. We do it all the time. The truth seems too difficult. I'm just gonna go back to this place. It probably won't be as bad this time. If we go back to Egypt, they're probably gonna treat us better because they know, hey, we could leave again, right? So they're gonna treat us better this time. No, but we do that too. I, the truth is too hard, so I'm gonna go back to this place. It probably won't be as bad this time if I go back to it. We choose to live in bondage because the truth can be too difficult for us when we are in that shallow faith, when we are in that place of just an emotional relationship with Jesus. We choose to go back to that place of bondage. The very thing that God has delivered us from, we will choose over him if we don't have the eyes of our heart open to see what he wants us to see in our life. In fact, what happens is we get swayed so easily by cultural relevance, whether it's church culture or culture culture, right? It is so easy for us to lose focus. Man, it is so easy to lose our focus on Jesus. In fact, the writer of Hebrews, in chapter two, verse one, look what it says. He says, we must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard so that we will not drift away. We have to pay careful attention. We have to be intentional about our attention to Jesus so that we will not drift away. Can I tell you, if you are not paying careful attention, if you are not intentional and committed, you will drift away because it's in our nature. And can I tell you, you never drift into the inner circle, ever. You're always drifting away. There's no drifting to the inner circle to that deep relationship with Jesus. It's always going to drift you away. All right, third and finally, let me give you the inner circle. And this is the, you see what few see. This is the disciples, the ones that were close to Jesus, the ones that had been with him and knew him deeply. These are the ones that see Jesus for who he really is. And I can tell you, if you are in this circle, you're gonna be in the minority. Again, not because it's exclusive, but because few people are willing to choose it. Few people are willing to really commit and be intentional about their relationship with Jesus. And the disciples saw this. They didn't see just a good man or a teacher or a preacher or even a prophet. They saw the Messiah. That's why they were willing to do what they did. That's why they were willing to go take that colt. Because if it was anybody else but God telling you to go take that colt, I don't think they would have done it. Because it could have backfired on them. They could have looked like they were stealing him and got put in prison. But because they knew he was the Messiah, they knew that if he said that they could do it, that they could do it. And when you see Jesus for who he really is, it opens up your whole world. You don't just see him as a ticket to heaven. You see him as a loving father. You don't just see God as a, you don't see him as a buzzkill with rules that are, that are there to keep us from having any fun. But you really see him as a loving father that is wanting to keep you from the bondage that so many of those things put us in. But you have to have the eyes of your heart opened to see it. You see him in the trials of life. You don't get mad at him when you go through things and wonder where he is, but you know that he's there with you and he's carrying you through those trials in your life. That takes revelation of him and knowing him. You don't see a good man riding a donkey, you see the Messiah if you are part of, if you have this level of relationship with him. But I can tell you, the only way you're going to see what few see is if you're willing to admit what few will admit. To be willing to admit that there is no other way for you, that there is no good in you apart from Jesus. That there is nothing in you that makes you holy. That there is nothing in you that makes you good. I shared this a little bit last week, but just the, the, the revelation that God gave me that changed my life was that I will never be a good enough Christian, so stop trying. And that can seem like, oh, good, so you can do whatever you want. No. He just changed my focus. I went from trying to be a good Christian and following all the rules to actually focusing on my relationship with him and realizing that I'm not good enough, that I'll never be good enough, that my best efforts fall so infinitely short that it's laughable. See, I think too often times we approach our faith kind of like um, when we see athletes that have reached the mountaintop, you know, they've won the championships, they've, they've got to where they wanted to get in life, they've reached the pinnacle of their sport. And inevitably you'll hear some of these athletes say, you know, I got to a certain level on my own, but I just couldn't get past that ceiling 
but somebody else came into my life, a trainer, a manager, a coach, a caddy, whatever it is, that came in and helped me get to the next level. In fact, um, I was told in the early service, Mike Tyson, he gives his trainer all the credit in the world for helping him get to that place in his life. And that's great in sports. And that's wonderful when you see that, people that get to a certain place on their own and then all of a sudden, somebody else comes into their life, next thing you know, they're the champ, right? And too often times we approach our faith that way. That, oh, I'm just gonna do my best and let God do the rest. Okay, I've seen that bumper sticker and I get the heart behind it, but that is horrible theology. Because it's not about us doing our best and letting God pick us up from there. It's about knowing that I, my best doesn't get me anywhere up here. My best still keeps me on the floor when it comes to my, my holiness and my goodness and my worth in life. The thing that gives us the value in life is the spirit of God. It's, it's the love of God in us. It's understanding that, yes, I desperately need a savior and I desperately need a Lord. He is the air I breathe. He's the oxygen in my lungs. He is the blood flowing through my veins. He is the everything that gives me my thoughts, my ability to do everything I do. It's all him. And we have to get to that place so we can realize and have that, that understanding to be able to have that depth of relationship with him. It's the only way to get to that place. Peter understood that. When Jesus met Peter and told him to throw his nets in and he pulled in this huge catch, he knew right away he was in the presence of God. And you know what he said? He said, get away from me, Lord, because I'm a sinful man. Guess what? Jesus said, come follow me. I can work with that. I can work with someone that says, I'm no good and I'm sinful. That's exactly where you have to get to be able to have Jesus in your life and changing you and working in you because we are not good enough. And to see him as only a few sees him requires our total commitment to him. Now listen, these three circles, okay, they don't have borders where you, you venture over and one to the other. Again, just an illustration. But the reality is, we will go in and out of some of these circles in our life. I, I have temptations in my own life that, that would try to get me into that middle circle. I, I don't think I could get into that outer one where I'd be far from God, but it's only because of his grace in my life. But I know that it's not always just this living in that inner circle and that, that core and just burning hot all the time. It's not like that for us. But when we get out of that circle, the grace of God is what gets us back in. It's his grace in us, working in us and through us that brings us back. He says, if you turn to me, I will, I will not turn away anyone that comes to me. And he died for you and for me. So that's his heart for each one of us to be in that inner circle with him. Would you stand with me, please? And I will close today. I wanna, I wanna pray for us. But I wanna mention one other thing. I want you guys to know we are all invited to that inner circle. It wasn't always the case, you know. There was a time where to be that close to God in the Old Testament, it was only for a select few. If you wanted to talk to God, you had to go to a prophet and say, hey, can you ask God this for me? Or the priest. There's only a few people that actually had complete access to God like that. But when Jesus came, what we're celebrating next week, when he died on the cross, you see that the veil that was in the temple was torn in two. That veil is what separated the people from the presence of God. And Jesus dying tore that veil so that we all have access now into the presence of God. We all have access into the inner courts, into the inner circle in our life. But it's still up to us to go into it. We want more of Jesus in our life, right? But are we willing to do what it takes to go into that place of depth of relationship with him? He doesn't pull us in. He says, behold, I stand at the door and knock, but you gotta open it. You're the one that has to walk through it and take that step and make that commitment to him. I wanna encourage you today, wherever you find yourself in your perspective and your relationship with Jesus, we're always only a decision away, really, from going into that deeper place. Our next step is always about going deeper in our relationship with him. Can I encourage you today to ask God to open the eyes of your heart so you can go to deeper places with him? telling you, I prayed every day. I feel like I have really good 
understanding in my relationship with him. I know I have a long way to go, but I feel like I have understanding. I feel like I have clarity. Not that I understand everything that's going on, but I have clarity knowing that no matter what I'm going through, I can trust him because I've seen his faithfulness. I see his faithfulness in the hard times. I see it in the good times, but it's because I have prayed and I've asked God to open my eyes. It's the only way you can see it. And I know sometimes it looks foolish to people that don't see it, but I'm willing to look like a fool for Jesus. And I pray that you would be too. Let's pray together. You're welcome to come to the altar if you'd like to pray here, as some have already done, just to spend some time with the Lord, but let's pray. Father, we do love you today. We thank you for your word. Your word is truth. Your word is life. And you are faithful, God. We thank you for that today. We declare it today that you are faithful, that you are worthy of our lives, Lord. God, I pray today for everyone under the sound of my voice that you would enlighten the eyes of our heart to see you, to see the hope that we have, to see us as you see us, and to know the incomparably great power that is in us by your spirit. Open our eyes, Lord. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Lord, we wanna be in that inner circle. We wanna be in the holy place, the most holy place, in your presence, God. Help us, Lord. Lord, if we have ridden the emotions of faith in you, Lord, and, and, and relied on it and counted on it to stoke our faith, God, would you help us to see that it's not about that. It's about being committed. It's about living every day unapologetically for you, Lord, that you would be glorified in our lives. Lord, that you could be glorified in the mundane in our lives you are faithful in everything. Lord, we honor you today. We worship you. God, we repent for where we have been content to be in the outer circle or the middle circle or any other circle. Make us discontent, Lord. Make us unrestful until we give ourselves to you completely and totally. Lord, we thank you for your grace today that covers us. We thank you that you are faithful and just to forgive us when we confess our sins to you, Lord. We honor you today. We worship you. It is all for you and for your glory, God. Would you seal this work that you're doing in our hearts right now by your spirit, that the enemy cannot steal this word from us, but that it would produce in our lives this afternoon and tomorrow and moving forward. We give you all the honor and the glory, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said, amen, amen. Can we praise God one more time? Thank you, Lord.